Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Welcome to Transporter Lock, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I am one of your hosts. I am Sabriel, and I'm joined this week, as every week. Why do I say join this week? I can. Hey. Hey, I'm your other host. Hi, Bree. Yeah, I don't know why I'm introducing you. Like, it's uh, your new guest appearance. Because somebody might be listening to this episode, and it's their first episode of Transporter Lock. Yeah, yeah, I'm going confuse them. All right, well, anyway, we are here to talk about Star Trek Discovery. This week's episode is Lethe, but we have a few things we want to talk about first. Kenya, I think you had an experience you want to talk about. We are now on our sixth episode of Star Trek Discovery, and I went back and rewatched the very first episode, The Vulcan Hello, with my mom, because we've been watching Star Trek The Next Generation together, and when I told her that there was a new Star Trek debuting for the first time in 12 years, she wanted to get in on the ground floor and give it a go. Before we could even start watching it, though, we had to overcome the challenge of getting her equipped to watch a show that is exclusively on CBS All Access. And it turns out it was not easy. How do you watch the show, Bree? I watch it either on my desktop or laptop, and typically I try to cast it onto my TV. However, CBS All Access was having troubles yesterday. But that's beside the point. But otherwise, typically laptop or PC. So it wasn't just me having trouble streaming last night? No, uh, the entirety of all Star Trek fandom who was trying to watch was struggling. Oh, okay, because I stream it to either my Xbox 360, PS4, or Apple TV. I do have it on my laptop. I generally don't watch it that way. But my mom, she doesn't have a laptop. She doesn't have a desktop. She has an iPad, and she has a brand new 4K TV that she just bought this year, and a Blu-ray player that she bought last year. Both of those devices, the TV and the Blu-ray player, are fairly smart, and they have apps, but neither of them have CBS All Access apps. And so I tried hooking up her iPad to the TV using an HDMI adapter, and it kind of worked, except it didn't fill up the entire screen. There was a black border around it. Then I tried with my laptop, hooking up my laptop via HDMI out, which it has, to the TV. And that also kind of worked, but the audio kept skipping. And so there was really no easy way to watch this show without additional expensive equipment and adapters, and even then it would come across with flaws. I don't know how CBS expects people who just have a TV and want to watch Star Trek to be able to do so. Yeah, I find CBS, I mean, I've mentioned it here on the show, I keep trying to reel myself in, I can save that for a different medium, but start CBS All Access is a painful experience, and I feel... Envious of everyone who gets to watch it on Netflix. Right, which is everybody except the United States. And Canada. Oh, Canada has it on Netflix? Uh, They have it on Space Channel, something I think it's called. I don't know if that's still only streaming or if it's on TV, though. You know what? That's it. After everything that's happened in the United States in the past year, this is the final straw. I'm moving to Canada. (laughs) No, no, move to Europe. That's right. Like Norway or or Sweden. I hear Sweden is delightful. Yes, yes. And you know, like they have stuff like healthcare and Star Trek. <laughs> my goodness. So my mom and I did eventually get it going, and we watched the Vulcan Hello. And she wasn't interested in watching Battle of the Binary Stars. After watching the Vulcan Hello, she said she really couldn't get into it. And I think that's because these are brand new characters, like you would experience with any first episode of Star Trek. Whereas with The Next Generation, she knows the characters. And even though she's watching it for the first time with me, it was always on in the background when, when my dad and I were watching it. So she feels she has some familiarity with the characters. So Discovery didn't really do it for her. Oh, I can understand that sentiment. It's unfortunate. I think she's missing out on some good show, but if it doesn't seem to be clicking for her, I can I can totally see that. And also, given the need to prioritize, I mean, we have four more seasons of TNG to watch, and then after that, we can choose to go on to DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, the animated series, or something relevant but separate like Quantum Leap. So I don't know that she really <laughs> needs to go right into Discovery right now. Oh, boy. But she'll have plenty of opportunities in the future because you have some news for us. Yes. As we are about to record this, I noticed that Star Trek.com posted something saying that there is going to be a season two of Discovery. Yay! Yeah, I know. It was great. This is something we all kind of assumed was going to happen, but wasn't official. And now it's official. Yeah, because weren't you saying that even before the first episode, just due to licensing, merchandising, and con appearance, they'd already turned a profit? Yeah, yeah. 
So they could have not even they could have teased us and never aired it, and they would have made money. They would have lost a lot of cred, and then never <laughs> would have worked again in Hollywood. But could have. I wonder if they'll revisit the CBS All Access exclusivity. Maybe they'll do like a one-year delay, so next year season one will air on CBS TV. I don't know. Hopefully, or maybe season one would be on Netflix or DVD or Blu-ray. Or home video. There we go. Because even buying it on home video would be cheaper than buying a year of CBS All Access. Yes. Anyway, enough of beating on CBS. Right. <laughs> After all, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. <laughs> so why don't we get started with this week's episode? Yeah. So this week's episode, Leith, Leithy, 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 Leith. Go on. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, it's apparently the word. I had to go to Wikipedia because I am not up on my classic Greek, and it means oblivion, forgetfulness, or concealment. I think almost most of these words fit in very well with this episode. Yeah, we can talk about the implications once we've walked through the episode so that we're not yes. spoiling it for our viewers, but that will be something that will be useful to keep in mind as we think about Lethe. So our opening scene is a very quick one. I think it's just to establish things. We appear to be on Vulcan and Sarek and... He addresses this person, and basically they summon a ship, and they are going on a diplomatic mission. That's all we know. And this is not our first time seeing Vulcan. It's been in lots of TV shows and movies, but I've never seen it looking quite like this. Yeah, it's very shiny. Enterprise kind of establishes lots of modernism and whatnot. I think the movies did too. But there was some contention because of the sky on the internet forums. Uh, People are saying, why does Vulcan have two moons when Vulcan doesn't have any? And... Watching it a second time, like I don't think it does. I think these are just other planetary bodies in Vulcan's system. So I think this is supposed to be Vulcan. They would have to be pretty big to be visible from the surface like that. Well, in Star Trek 2009, we got to see one from Prime Spock's point of view. He got to see Vulcan's destruction. So we know there's some kind of planetary body very close. I remember people taking issue with that scene as well, because he should not have been able to see it or at least see it that quickly. Yeah. And eh, it's also TV movies. I, I don't have too much of a problem with this. But I also don't, I think people are looking at where at things they don't, I don't know. I just don't have a problem with this potential large bodies in space near Vulcan. They don't, they didn't appear to be moons or satellites to me. That's no moon. <laughs> it's just artistic license. Yeah, yeah. And there is precedent in Star Trek The Motion Picture where they put moons on there by accident. So it could be a nod to that, but I don't know. I don't think they should take an accident to be a precedent. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think so either. I just joking kind of there. Anyway, I don't think this is as big of a deal as people were making it out to be. Probably not. It's just people who like to nitpick, like us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so from there we go back up to Discovery. Yeah, so we get to a scene where Burnham and Tilly are doing laps around uh the deck that they're running around. And they get to, they get to see these t shirts, their workout shirts, and they have disco on them. Yeah, that I thought I mean I saw that coming in a preview and I thought it was from a fan point of view, pretty cool because, hey, disco shirts. But at the same time, of all the things they could have abbreviated Discovery to be, they chose disco. <laughs> if I recall correctly, it's also on the sides of the shuttlecraft. Oh, okay. Disco. So does that mean that every Starfleet ship has its own t-shirt? You know, maybe. We just don't see it because people don't normally run in the halls. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just... Only on Enterprise. I mean, I guess this is some sort of a team-building exercise where everybody gets to wear the, the same branded T-shirts. I hope they don't have to pay for it. <laughs> I know, like, we would have to pay up the, we have to pay up the, an arm and a leg if we want to buy one. I know, right? Not just if we want a disco shirt, but, like, if my company said, all right, from now on, we're all going to wear the same T-shirts. They're nineteen ninety-five each. They'll be taken out of your next paycheck. That's not exactly a good team-builder. <laughs> but anyway, this scene is... Burnham, in her mind, helping Tilly train on her path from cadet to captain. Burnham is like, you need to work on your physicality. I love this sign, or this, this, this moment here, because Tilly's like, well, I make up for it in intelligence and personality. And she does this little toss-toss with her hair, which <laughs> I thought was adorable. <laughs> and Burnham says, personality doesn't count. They don't care about personality. Everybody competing to be a captain is smart, so you have to make a difference somewhere else. Yes, and that becomes... Important later. But this scene also gets a little nod to Star Trek elsewise. And we get, uh, she references Constitution class ships like the Enterprise. She's yeah. to tell Tilly that she should work for that. Yeah, that part of the path to the captain's seat is getting a transfer to the Enterprise or a ship like it. Yeah. So that was a fun little nod. I think every Star Trek fan is like, oh, oh, there it is. <laughs> Do we know of any other Constitution class starships in Star Trek's history, especially at this point in the show's timeline? 
We do. We saw a few of them even on TOS. There was the Defiant. There was Decker's ship. I'm drawing a blank on what it was. The one that was eaten by the planet Eater. The big uh, paper mache creature in space. But yeah, most of the ships that the Enterprise came across that were Federation were Constitution class. Oh, okay. And then from there, we see another two members of the Discovery crew training. This time, it's Lorca and our new Lieutenant Ash Tyler, recently freed from a Klingon prison ship. And they are back on a Klingon prison ship, firing at Klingons and destroying the hell out of them. To me, it was obvious what was going on here right away. I don't know if it was for you or not. What gave it away for me was that they were having small talk. Like, so, where'd you grow up? Oh, Seattle. Yeah. While they are avoiding Klingons. I'm like, that's a little bit too casual. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we discover we're on the holodeck. Or something like it. Yeah, something like a holodeck. Uh, which apparently they, there's apparently in TOS there was a references to something like that. So it wasn't, it, it's, uh, in TNG it was apparently the realism, what was what was big new, big and new and not the fact that holodecks exist. We saw the technology being demonstrated by an alien race on Enterprise, which is set 90 years before Discovery. So it's not all that unbelievable that within the span of a century, Starfleet would have either invented their own equivalent or bartered for it with an alien race that had joined the Federation. Yeah, but I still thought it was cool. And basically, it was their own version of laser tag because their guns uh, would track how many kills they got. <laughs> and Ash Tyler got a lot more than the captain. He originally lies about it because he, you know, kind of like when you go golfing with the boss, you let the boss win. But then the captain sees how many shots or kills that Tyler actually got and says, never lie about being excellent. I need excellence from my chief of security. Yeah, so this is the moment where we discover that uh, Lorca is offering him the position. How did you feel about that? I think, perhaps this is, I should have thought this is about Michael too, but uh, yeah, I thought like, what? You barely know this guy, but this scene also establishes that Lorca has been investigating this guy and checking out his story. And this is basically kind of a test. The hologram was the test, you mean? The holodeck Yeah, trial? the hol yeah, hanging out with him getting to know him. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to check out a Starfleet officer. All you need to do is give him a physical in the sickbay and read his record in your computer database, and then you know pretty much everything there is to know about him. Yeah, there's more interesting here. There's a scene where, okay, Ash says he's from Seattle, and his parents are dead, he goes into Hawaii, and his mom was a teacher, and Lorca says, basically, he, he, he knows all this, and you're not from Seattle, you're from 24 minutes east of Seattle kind of thing. Right. You know, so you're not from Seattle. And he's like, I like to split hairs. Right. So I think that was an important line. Why? I think we're going to find we find out more about his character, but I also suspect it's going to be important in the future. I'm concerned. I mean, you mentioned having a similar reaction to when Lorca conscripted Burnham. And that is that Lorca seems to be hiring the first individuals he encounters, whether or not they are physically or mentally fit, whatever their history may be. And in this case... Ash Tyler, sure, you can have his Starfleet record and know that he is impeccable, but he spent six months being presumably sexually assaulted on a Klingon prison ship, and he's going right from that to being chief of security, filling the position formerly occupied by Landry, who was killed. I mean, I don't know yeah. that this is how promotion works. You know, ascension through assassination? I mean, I think there should be somebody who was working in security on Discovery who should be ready to get into that position. You just made an allusion to something that I don't know if you realize you just did. Oh, I'm quite aware. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but with, with Michael, he had a plan for that, and he set it up so she would be joining him. He's just dude that was rescued and probably has some tra trauma or P PTSD of some kind. And all of a sudden, like, hey, you want to be chased by security? And guy's like, yeah, I like to kill Klingons, man. Lorca's like, good, because you fight like a Klingon. And I think that was a little... <gasps> referencing what we talked about last week, where a lot of people think Tyler might be Vogue. Which we seemingly missed a, something that supports that theory, which was the Klingon captain of the prison ship, the woman who got the phaser fire to the face, scarring her in a very easily identifiable way for future episodes... I didn't recognize her, but if you check IMDb and also some reviews of that episode, that apparently was Lorel, the same woman from the house Mokai, who saved Voke at the end of the previous episode. Yeah, I did not catch it at all. There's a lot going on with this character that we need to figure out, but that's pretty much the end of that scene before we go back to Sarek, who is on his ship, on his way to a secret rendezvous meeting that we don't know about yet, his Vulcan travel companion injects himself 
with this glowy red stuff that causes his whole body to become highly volatile. And he basically says that I know the nature of this mission and you are trying to consort with non-Vulcans. You're trying to pollute and dilute our the purity of our logic and we will not stand for that. Yeah, we see another group of Vulcan fanatics, something we saw on Enterprise. And also on one episode of DS9, there was a Vulcan who was uh, yes, going around yes. assassinating people and he said it was the only logical conclusion to the trauma he had suffered. Yeah, it's not something new here. But I didn't expect it, I suppose. Because that stuff that he injected himself with is much like in Iron Man 2. The extremist, yes. Yeah, it, it causes his whole body to explode. He becomes the bomber. And so his body explodes because he, unlike most Vulcans, he doesn't believe in infinite diversity in infinite combinations. He thinks Vulcans should remain pure and true, which is very illogical, as is killing yourself because Vulcans are supposed to be pacifists. They're not supposed to kill. I mean, that's why all Vulcans are vegetarian. And here's this guy not only killing himself, but trying to kill Sarek. Yeah, it seems like there'd probably be a different way to do this for a Vulcan. But this is not the first time we've seen Vulcans resorting to bombing. They did it on the Forge and Enterprise as well. Right, which resulted in the death of Admiral Maxwell Forrest. So Vulcans have a violent history, which of course is why they instituted Surak's teachings to try to tamp down on those violent emotions. This is their history, and it's what caused the split with the Romulans. So there is definitely precedent, which we would hope that they would have reined in through logic. Apparently there is some recidivism within the Vulcan culture. Yes. And so... Sarek tries to beat the man out, is only partially successful before it blows up and injures Sarek, and he's knocked out. Wait, I'm sorry, he tries to do what now? He was trying to beam the Vulcan bomber out. I thought he was trying to erect a shield between himself and the bomber. I saw the, the glowy transporter effect was around him. Have we seen Vulcan transporters on Discovery yet? No, but it looked like, it looked like Federation transporter tech. How could Sarek survive the bomb if he wasn't successful in transporting it off the ship? I didn't... Space? fiction like like, i don't think he was completely successful or the bomb wasn't as successful as he thought but another way no matter what happened uh how it worked out it wasn't completely successful i'm also wondering why Sarek waited so long to take action he let the bomber give a speech before he did anything that was weird for me too it seemed like dramatic effect (laughs) a tv dramatic effect but that did seem weird to me very illogical yeah That is the cold open. We have the opening sequence, and then we see Michael and Tilly in the cafeteria using the food replicators, which is getting all up in their business about the nutritional value of their meals. Yeah, I was like, what is going on with this? Is this And they don't seem phased by it. (laughs) It's kind of like how nowadays we have a trend of menus listing the calories and etc. of various dishes. This thing tells you... Three nutritious and good-for-you omelets, now ready. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, two appetizing and nutrient-filled burritos. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and also, as NMR just pointed out to me, why, if the replicator is able to make food, why doesn't it just inject any food with the nutrients you need? And Why does it yeah. have to be roasted tomato salsa? Why not just put all those lycoprenes in every food? It's possible that some people are not sure how replicators, like, they don't think there is replicators in this era. I remember this talk years ago. And that basically any food they ordered was just stored locally somewhere. But, and this is, uh, or, or this is some kind of, I don't know. We don't know if these are actually replicators. We've seen that they are capable of replicating Starfleet uniforms. I think yeah, a food would be so, possible. Yeah, I think they probably did fix that. Because before it was kind of unsure, but I think, yeah, Discovery is like, yeah, these are replicators. I think you're right. It seems unlikely that they would order an omelet and have the replicator say, I'm sorry, but we're currently out of eggs. <laughs> no, I don't think it's stored locally. No, I, I, like I just said, I think they fixed that uncertainty here. So, but Nonetheless, it seems a rather simplistic technology compared to the food replicators we see on the Enterprise D. Yes, yes. And as they get their food, they turn around and we see Tilly basically swooning and having a hots for Ash, who is sitting down, Ash Tyler, who is also here in the mess hall. I mean, he is rather good-looking, and he certainly invites them to join him for lunch, so they all sit down and have a little confab, and they make introductions. Tilly starts the conversation immediately saying, like, These are, this is all, everything that everyone's saying about you. 
He's like, don't believe everything you hear. But when he realizes that Burnham is the mutineer, Burnham's like, you can believe everything you hear. And this is where I start liking Tyler even more because he says, I judge people in the here and now. I don't care what you've done before. Yeah, I liked that philosophy as well. Not enough people are acknowledging the fact that they were not present at the Battle of the Binary Stars. They don't know what happened on the Shenzhou. They don't know the circumstances that forced Burnham to do this. She's not just some Starfleet officer who decided to throw away a seven-year career. She had reasons for what she did. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate that Tyler recognizes that, you know, context is for kings. <laughs> There's a quick little scene where they're doing the introductions, and this time it's Michael being kind of the awkward one as she's studying Tyler, and you see Tilly kick uh, Burnham under the table. Yeah, it's quite the role reversal. Usually Sylvia is the one who needs some coaching. Yes, I, I liked that role reversal. The introduction doesn't last very long because then Burnham has some Vulcan psychic flashback, kind of like she did in the second episode, and she collapses in a fit, and she was in Sarek's mind, reliving the day when she got rejected from the Vulcan Science Academy, when Sarek informed her, I'm sorry, but you didn't make the cut despite all your great tests and your scores, etc., etc. You are not welcome here. And is this the first time in Discovery that we have seen Sarek's wife, Amanda? Yes, yes. Great. So we have yet another actor playing Amanda for the, you know, this is like the second or third time we've seen this character in Star Trek. It's um, more recently of Winona Ryder in the 2009 movie. I really liked this scene because at one point it stops being just a flashback and the Sarek of seven years ago who's delivering this news suddenly turns to the embodiment of the modern Burnham who's been observing this scene and he turns to her and he can see her and says, what are you doing here? This is my mind. Get out. And he does like a Hadouken and into her abdomen <laughs> and pushes her out of his head. And he and she wakes back up on Discovery. Yeah, she's back in sickbay. And I totally had uh, Inception vibes, the movie Inception. Have you seen this? Oh, I have seen Inception and I hated it. So please don't make that reference. Wow. You were the first person I've ever heard say that. But anyway. Me too. I know. <laughs> it's so lonely over here. Uh, the idea was once the person realizes you're there they start doing things and pushing you out and i that's what happened here too it was interesting though because burnham didn't ask to be in sarek's mind it's almost like she was pulled in and then pushed out and she's like coming or going sarek make up your mind yeah yeah she's like i i didn't choose this you did it right so she wakes up back in sick bay and that's where we learn that she has the psychic connection that goes both ways. I mean, we knew that, but now she shares it with her crew. Burnham says that there is a precedent within her own lifetime of Vulcan bombings. We saw in one of the first two episodes a flashback of her in the Vulcan Learning Center, and there was a terrorist attack, and we thought it was Klingons. I thought it was odd that Klingons would target her specifically twice in her lifetime. They killed her parents, and then they'd bomb her Learning Center. This is where we found out the second bombing was the act of Vulcan terrorists. They didn't want a human studying there, and so they tried to kill her again to keep the Vulcan culture pure. Yeah, they even like killed innocents or attacked with innocents there, bombed the building. So they really, really have a problem with this. Yes, it's very illogical. I mean, we've seen kind of stuff like that in real life too. So it's that's true. Unfortunate. So what you're saying is that discovery is no escape from real life. It's just the same problems we've always had put into a different context, which on one hand is a lack of escapism. On the other hand, it's exactly what Gene Roddenberry wanted, was to use this sci-fi lens to examine modern-day political issues. Yep, with the Russian Klingons and everything. So I wonder how many people will get the metaphor of what's happening here, or if one was even intended, as opposed to it just being, oh, this is something that happens in real life. We can use that in our character's backstory. Like, like the Sulabon. <laughs> no, no. Enterprise was a little bit too heavy-handed with that. Well, even the name, they didn't try that. They, they named the, the Sulabon first, and then the World Trade Center happened. That's right, because 9-11 happened of like a week before Enterprise debuted. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until season three that they said, oh, let's do an entire season that's just like 9-11. <laughs> Great. But back to sickbay. Michael describes how her relationship with Sarek and that he believed that she could serve as humanity's potential, like the showing the Vulcans what humans are capable of. Until he had this great moment of insight where she says, like, how could he put that kind of pressure on a child? And there's a moment of silence. It's like, yeah, this was a 
<laughs> he had a lot of hope right here, and he was putting a lot on the line. I'm surprised that Sarek would do that, because he already had a son who was half-human, half-Vulcan. It seems like there was already plenty of potential to bridge that gap without putting all the onus on Michael, who had already lost her own parents. My God. The Vulcans don't seem to have much in the way of caring for PTSD and trauma, other than just, just hide it away. Well, they don't have much empathy either. Yeah. Because empathy is a human emotion. Or at least they don't share their empathy. It's not logical. So that scene ends with Lorca going to his ready room and meeting via hologram with a Vulcan, was it captain or admiral? It was an admiral. Okay. So it's a Vulcan admiral in Starfleet who can confirm everything Michael has just said, which is that Sarek was on his way to a secret meeting with two Klingon houses that have been rejected by Cole's war. Cole being the Klingon general who overthrew Voke to lead this war. And so it's not all 24 houses are united. At least two of them are being excluded. And so these Klingon house leaders hope that they can undermine Cole's efforts by meeting with the Vulcans behind Starfleet's back to basically clean up Starfleet's mess. Yeah. Uh, we, we, so we actually saw this Vulcan last week on Starbase. Oh, he was one of the three admirals who was meeting with Lorca about Discovery? Yep, yep. Okay. I, I guess there are only so many admirals because we keep seeing the same ones over and over. <laughs> maybe this sector, or maybe this is the small group that are overseeing Discovery. Maybe. It's like a focus group. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're having this conversation. Lorca chimes in, or chimes in saying, Klingons don't normally send party invitations. And he has this look like something is up. Something is up? What is up? Like, so, he doesn't know. Something, something is, he just thinks something is fishy about this. Huh. Because Klingons aren't normally the ones to go this route. And he has this, like, moment of his eyes. I was watching that the second viewing. Like, they're like, huh. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Interesting. Yeah. And the Vulcans, uh, our Vulcan admiral here, he says that the Vulcans are also suspicious. But uh, they chose Sarek to vet things. Or Sarek has been chosen to vet things. Okay. And because he demonstrates a unique ability to forge relationships with races who do not follow logic-based ideology. Like humans. Well, that too, but I had a problem with this line, and I think this dude is in on it. It being what we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> oh, okay. You just see conspiracies everywhere, don't you, Bree? I do. <laughs> but basically, he's describing everyone who's not a Vulcan. People who do not follow logic-based ideology. It's true. So Lorca basically says, well, we're going to... Mount of rescue mission, even though that is not what we're being assigned to do, we're going to do it on our own anyway. Yeah, and basically, he doesn't do the... He almost did the, oh, uh, you're breaking up. Oh, we can't hear you. And then hangs up on him. Sorry, we're going into a tunnel. <laughs> going into a wormhole. Losing reception. So. <laughs> yeah, so Lorca goes to the bridge, and I think this... I haven't been keeping track, but based on people who have, I think this is the first time we see Lorca actually sit in the captain's chair. Uh, he... Did earlier, I think. I mean, he's very often standing and yelling at people. Yeah. So maybe he has sat, and I, like I said, I'm not keeping track, but we definitely see him sit in this episode. Yes. This is a very quick scene where, but there's something here that impl immediately implied something. And the scene opens with Discovery using the mushroom drive to appear somewhere. But we don't have a tardigrade. It's true. And so that means us to assume that we've, that Stamets has figured out a way to plug in normally without being catastrophic to himself. Right, without all his vitals dropping dangerously low. Yeah, yeah. So it's the Iridian Nebula, which is a little nod to Deep Space Nine in Star Trek. Remind me how that's so? There's a race called the Iridians. They're information brokers. Oh, I totally missed that. As opposed to the Vidians, which were on Voyager stealing people's organs? Yeah, the Vidians, yeah. Vidians, that's right. Yeah, but that's an entirely different quadrant. Right. This is where they realize that due to the Nebula's radioactive interference, they can't scan for Sarek, and it would take months of probes scanning the nebula to find him, and of course they don't have months. So Burnham realizes that she can use her own psychic connection to try to talk to Sarek and have him help them find him. Yeah, there's actually this is this is like a quick one, one and a half minute scene between the bridge and then coming engineering here. It's just a quick bit of, let's shove something in here to put a reason why to shove these people on a shuttlecraft in a minute. <laughs> Like, like, there's not much here on the bridge going on other than this way to science thing without. Right, but what happens in engineering I thought was interesting. We quickly cut down to engineering where we're sciencing the heck out of things again. And Burnham says she wants to basically use her connection to Sarek to find them. Stamets is like, groovy. <laughs> 
And Stamets is like that throughout the entire scene, where he's just using very colloquial language, and uh, he's not being rude, he's just being very easily impressed, very laid back, using automatopoeia, and he just seems like somebody who just took a hit from a bong. Yep, exactly. We get down here, and even the captain comments that, like, you're kind of flying high here, (laughs) basically. And since, as you pointed out, Stamets is the one who powered the mushroom jump that happened just moments ago, he's probably coming down from something. I think so. He's like, once you get past getting stabbed by needles, it's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> he calls this idea of Burnham's steric vision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping this is just a temporary effect on his character after a warp and that this is not part of his permanent connection to the mycelium network and that he's not always going to be like this because that would get a bit much. We don't need a stoner on Discovery. That, or maybe it is a reference to what we saw at the end of last episode. It's a possibility. I think it's more connected to the spore drive and less Mirror Universe, but it's not implausible. Anything is possible in Star Trek. Yeah, it's also true. Once they figure out that Burnham is going to basically boost her psychic connection to Sarek and go into the nebula to try to find him and talk to him psychically, Lorca and Ash and Tilly and Burnham are all getting the shuttle ready. Uh, Lorca is not going to be on the shuttle, but he boards it momentarily and tells Ash, bring Burnham back without a scratch, or don't bother coming back at all, which I thought was very revealing of his intentions. We don't necessarily know what they are yet, but we know what his priorities are, even if we don't know why. Yep, Yep, her safety is above everything else. She is important to the mission, whatever that mission is. Yeah, and it certainly implies that he has had plans for her ever since he detoured her shuttle to Discovery in the third episode. He wants her on Discovery for something, for some reason, that we don't know. But there is a larger plan at work here that only Lorca knows about. Yeah, I can't wait till we find out what that is. I don't think we're going to see it coming, whatever it is. (laughs) So yeah, we had like three quick little scenes right in a row to kind of advance the storyline. And then we we slow things down a bit. While the away team departs on the shuttle, Lorca gets a visitor of his own. Yeah, he's like drawing on space maps, and all of a sudden he's informed that Admiral Cornwell, the woman from the Starbase last episode, is here. <laughs> Not uh, on, on uh, subspace, but is actually here. Yeah, she beams onto Discovery, and she goes at Lorca in his ready room, basically saying, you have a chief of security who was tortured for six months. You yourself were just tortured a week ago on a Klingon prison ship. You conscripted Burnham, who's a mutineer, and you have an engineer who engaged in eugenics. Yeah, that seems like quite a disaster waiting to happen, doesn't it? I mean, I know that they're at war, and he has some liberty to run his war the way he wants to, but she's really making it clear that he is pushing the limit of how much Starfleet will bend in order to win this war. Yeah, I like his line, like, rules are for admirals. And then she chimes back, it's like, don't make enemies on your own side. Right. And then suddenly it stops. And he's like, what are you doing out here? And she's like, I came to see my friend. Aww. And things calm down a bit. And he's like, well, if you want to talk like friends, let's talk like friends. And he pulls out the Romulan ale. <laughs> Actually, it was not ale. It was vodka. Was it vodka? How do you know? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why we know in, in a moment when we get back to his quarters. Okay. But then we cut to Sarek's mind. After in the nebula, and we cut into Sarek's mind again. Yeah, that nebula. I've never seen a nebula like that on Star Trek. It is lit up like a no. Christmas tree. It is. Usually it's this big, wispy, or wispy, wispy thing. And here it's just like color, psychedelic, uh, probably too many mushrooms uh, <laughs> experience. <laughs> this is what Stamets now sees always. But, uh, <laughs> oh dear, that would explain a lot. <laughs> We see a metal device attached to Burnham's face, making three points of connection right where a Vulcan mind meld would. And she says to Tilly, whatever happens, don't pull me out. She goes under, goes back into Sarek's mind. Michael goes into Sarek's mind, and they engage basically like, I don't know my martial arts, so I'm just going to say kung fu. It's like a Vulcan hand-to-hand combat. And it's, yeah, Vulcans had their own martial arts. And it's, it looks awesome, and I love the battle that they get into. Yeah, it was a cool little battle. It's just like, they're like, no, no, listen to me, no, listen to me. And right in the middle of the battle, Ash Tyler says, I rank you, Tilly. I don't care what Burnham said. She's not doing well. Pull her out of the psychic connection. Yeah, he pulls rank on her, and she's like, oh, fine. This jump into Sarek's mind actually goes back just a few minutes before the first one did. And there's a scene here where 
Amanda gives Michael a copy of Alice in Wonderland that we saw. That's and right. She gives some mother, yeah, she gives some motherly advice, saying, uh, basically, you'll go far, but never forget you're human and nurture that side as well. At this point, Amanda thinks that she's going to be getting into the uh, Vulcan Expeditionary Force. Right, because all her test results suggest that she should. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's not to happen because then that's when Sarah comes back and repeats the scene we saw before. And this time, Burnham calls him out and says, hey, I'm in your mind. Help me help you. Just like you helped me the last time we had a psychic connection. And they fight and then they're pulled, she's pulled out. We cut from that back to Lorca and Cornwell having drinks. Now they're in his <laughs> personal quarters uh, and they're reminiscing about stuff. And when she pulls up an old memory... He doesn't respond. And she says, don't tell me you don't remember. He says, no, I do. It's just, I can't believe how long ago it seems. Which is a total dodge because he doesn't actually engage in active listening where he adds details and reaffirms that he remembers it as well. You're right. You know, I didn't catch that in both viewings. Yeah, so there's definitely something suspicious here. It's possible that this is not the Lorca that she's reminiscing about. He may have passed his psyche valve with flying colors after he lost the USS Buran, but there's, we're starting to suspect how did he survive that battle and how did he come back with such a healthy psyche? Yeah, that would be impossible to, like virtually impossible to come back from. That was, he's had a very traumatic moment. His friend seems to be coming to check up Checking on him. But as we've seen, Starfleet, in, just in the run of Discovery, has a history of putting people back in the line of fire far too fast. They've done it with Lorca, Tyler, Burnham. Everybody is just getting hit left and right, and they're expected to keep doing their job. Yeah, this is war that happened in real life, too. And like That was a problem with uh, out in the Middle East, our Iraq problems and the stuff that we did, and Afghanistan, too. Like, keeping people in there too long or too often. So it's another trait that we're borrowing from real life to put in the story. How entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But um, to lighten things up a bit, the reason I knew it was vodka that they're drinking and not Romulan ale is because she, she makes a comment, uh, uh, Cornwell, Admiral Cornwell makes a comment straight from the motherland. And to me, that was a little, well, maybe not as wrong, but a little reference to Chekhov, who was always talking about Russia. Yeah, but according to Chekhov, Russians invented everything. Oh, but you know, Russia, no, they, they call, yeah, that's too, too. But straight from the motherland and vodka. I mean, unless they're talking of, very rarely do you hear motherland referencing anything else. I guess that's true. I had taken it to be just colloquially referring to their homeland, that being Earth. To that point, it would definitely not be Romulan ale then. Yeah, yeah. Unless Cornwell's a secret Romulan. <gasps> <gasps> Maybe. <gasps> <Anyway>. <gasps> and they, they, uh, they talk about their past. And in the background, soft music is playing. And we did also discover at this point, Cornwell used to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist because he mentioned something like, I don't realize you're practicing Practicing again. again. And not only that, but they used to be more than just friends. Well, or friends with benefits because whatever happens, they're like, let's just, he's like, let's just put this down. And he puts his hand on her knee and and then as she puts her badge down, it cuts away. (laughs) She is signing off from work and ready to engage in some play. Sheesh. So then we go back to the shuttlecraft. Burnham is recently pulled out of her second intrusion into Sarek's mind, and she is so depressed because both times she's gone in, Sarek has been obsessed with what she perceives as her greatest failure to get into the Vulcan Science Academy, which we've been wondering ever since the second episode, why didn't she go in? Because she had said it was always her intention and said she joined Starfleet. Now we Uh know that she was rejected, and that is Sarek's dying thought. How can she save him when she is simultaneously discovering that she is his biggest disappointment, which she's kind of known for the last seven years anyway? Yeah, yeah. And she's having this down and, out, down, in the, down and out moment. And she's having this down and out moment. And Tyler basically is like, that doesn't make any sense. When I bet on my deathbed. And you're not. there's no logic in thinking of who's failed you. You don't think that when you're dying. You think about who you love and what you wish you had done differently. And what does he wish she done differently? And she uses this. It's also similar, in a way, to the TNG episode Dark Page, where Deanna Troy goes into Lwaxana Troy's mind to try to get her to reveal a secret. I forgot about that entirely. So did I. NMR Jess reminded me. So remind us what happened there. In the TNG episode Dark Page, Lwaxana Troy is... Her mental and emotional health is rapidly depleting, 
and she won't explain why. So Deanna goes into her mind as she's unconscious to try to talk to her and to reveal the secret that it turns out Loxana Troy had years ago had another daughter who had passed away and Loxana felt responsible for it. And it was only after sharing that grief that she was able to heal from it, something that she'd always kept from her other daughter, Deanna. Yeah, wow, that's very fitting to hear then. Yeah. So for the third and final time, she goes into Sarek's mind and engages in physical fisticuffs, but this time she's not insistent solely on saving him and getting him to activate the transponder on his Vulcan ship. Now she's going in with the knowledge that she's armed with from Ash Tyler that he's probably hiding something. And so she says... You know, I want to help you. I want you to have faith in me like you used to, implying that Sarek lost faith in her when she was not accepted to the Vulcan Science Academy. And he argues this point. He says, I never lost faith in you, and I will show you what I've been hiding. And he rewinds his memory a few minutes further than before, and now we get to see the whole scene play out in context, where Sarek is talking to the head of the Vulcan Science Academy, or at least the admissions office, and this is where we finally find out what happened that day. Yeah, this one, this moment has implications throughout all of some Star Trek history. Uh, I didn't catch right away. The Basically, the admin says, you're messing around with these humans. This is ridiculous. You're causing strife. And we'll let you have, uh, what does he say? We'll let you have, basically, he gives Sarek a choice of which, is his, which of his not-quite-Vulcan children will be allowed into the Vulcan science or the Vulcan expeditionary force. Right. There's Spock, who's half human, and there's Michael, who's all human. Both are being raised in the Vulcan tradition, but the Academy cannot stand to have their Vulcan-only institution diluted by more than one person. And so since Michael is older, she gets dibs, and it's up to Sarek whether or not he lets her in and closes that door on Spock's future or he reserves that privilege for his only blood son. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting kind of emotional just thinking about this as I sit here listening to you and think about the scene. Well, you're not the only one who's getting emotional because Sarah was <laughs> as well. Like He was visibly distraught by this decision. Like He says, you would ask me to make an impossible choice. And the admissions officer says, that sounds like you're being conflicted by emotion Sarek, and that's not what a Vulcan does. He just uses everything he can against Sarek, and it's so many low blows in a row. And oh my god, Vulcans are so freaking racist. <laughs> yes, they are. Not only the extremists, not only the fanatics, not only the ones that blow up children's learning centers and ambassadors' spaceships, but even the most professional and powerful Vulcans that are accepted by the community, the ones who are running the schools, oh my god, they're racist. <laughs> This is all heck. Yeah. It's it's disappointing. They seem to hold on to this for quite a while. You know, for so long, Vulcans were, in a way, at least for me, the ideal in the future of Star Trek. I mean, I didn't admire their lack of emotion, but I admired how precise and logical they were. Because logic is something that our society could stand to have a little bit more mm -hmm. of. And now I don't look at Vulcan as the same way anymore. I see that their logic is incredibly flawed by emotions that they're not even willing to admit to themselves. Yeah, they don't allow themselves and it hurts them. Right, but I mean, they, they have these negative emotions. To think that racism is logical is illogical. Racism is fueled by emotion and illogic. And for a Vulcan to not be able to see that is incredibly disappointing. Yeah, it's also only been, what, 100 years since the huge reformation of the, with the Xerox teachings coming back on Enterprise. So it hasn't been all that long in Vulcan time. Right, because that's not... I mean, you can have a generation who is still around after all that time. This admissions officer might have known Admiral Archer back when he was captain of the original Enterprise. I think it's enough time for a Vulcan to meditate and internalize these teachings. You can make some major decisions about I yourself sure in 90 years. I sure as hope, heck hope so. <laughs> Ugh. And so that is what happened, which was not that... Burnham was rejected from the Science Academy. It was that Sarek decided to let her be rejected in favor of Spock having a shot at it later in his life. Yeah, yeah, that was the implication. I'll get into the implications of that in a bit. Yeah. Then he comes back and lies and saying she was rejected. 
because she says, because you didn't tell me, you made me feel like I had failed you. And do you have any idea what you did to me? And he says, now I do. Yeah, he says, I failed you. And he says, for that, I have so much. And Michael says, shame. And he says, yes, he's not the one who says it. This is exactly like a scene that she had with Saru a few episodes ago, where she was trying to apologize and he fills in the missing word that she couldn't apologize. She couldn't say sorry. So she is just somebody who completes people's sentences for them? No, no, no. Uh, she completed Sarek's here, but Saru completed uh, Michael's a few weeks ago. Basically, she's more like Sarek than she realizes, I think. Yeah, that's something she inherited from her foster dad. Yeah. And so I thought that was just a very important moment of writing that it's easy to miss. Interesting. And then we go back to the Discovery to have another close encounter among two individuals. We see Cornwell and Lorca in bed. Lorca's asleep, and Cornwell is examining the strange scars on his back. I don't know if those were there the last time she saw him naked, but she starts to trace it, and he flips the F out. He immediately wakes up, pounces on top of her, puts one hand around her throat as if to crush her windpipe, and another hand suddenly has a phaser in it, primed to kill and point it at her head. Yeah, this this one was tough for me because I dated someone who had PTSD and it never occurred. that She never uh, did have that reaction with me, but I could see like, oh my God, this could have happened to me. That was kind of hard. Wow, I'm sorry. I didn't expect that to hit close to home. Yeah, I didn't either <laughs> until I was sitting there thinking like, oh my God, this could have been me. So that, that hit me hard and I could see why she was having, I could, she's, I could, that hit me hard. And I could see why she had the reaction she did, even besides just having a phaser shoved in her face. Someone you care about having that reaction to you, or possibly having that reaction to you, is hard. Yeah, and on one hand, I, I can appreciate how hard it was. I was hoping she would be somewhat empathetic, given that he was just tortured a week ago and that he had lost his ship a few months ago. But she is instead, rightly, freaked out and she jumps out of bed and says you sleep with a phaser and you tell me nothing is wrong and she's like no this i don't know how you passed your psych evals except that you lied and i'm gonna make sure that you lose this ship because you are not fit to be captain until you get some help yeah yeah and he and then when he starts groveling like please don't take my ship away from me I was afraid that he was purposely delaying her departure from his quarters long enough for him to get a hold of the phaser again. I really didn't think she was going to leave his quarters alive. You're not the only one who thought that. A number of people, a number of people online thought that too, but that didn't occur to me at all. Um, granted, firing an energy weapon on a starship would likely be detected, and having a dead admiral's body in your quarters is not the best thing, <laughs> but I wouldn't put it past him to have a Klingon disruptor that would just like leave no trace. Uh, I... I- I don't think that's his style, at least when it comes to someone he knows. Well, you pointed out in the previous episode that he knows his way around a Klingon shuttlecraft, so maybe he knows other things about Klingons, maybe he has some of their weapons. And as for how he would treat somebody he knows, given that he was dodgy about her recollections of their time spent together, it's possible he doesn't know her. It's possible, I suppose. It's possible. So instead of chasing after her into the hallway in his undies, he goes to sickbay where Burnham and Sarek have been returned because Burnham was successful in getting Sarek to activate the transponder. They found his ship in the nebula. They brought him back to Discovery, and he will heal. He is currently, it seems like almost the ICU, but he's going to be fine. They point out that Sarek will not be able to complete his diplomatic mission to the two Klingon houses, and so Lorca suggests that Admiral Cornwell would be able to make it instead. Now, what do you think of that offer, given everything we've learned about him in this episode? I'm still trying to figure that one out. And the internet, I don't think he had any sway in this, other than he just threw that out there like, hey, it's an idea. because, Or, hey, it's out there because we're not that far from where they were supposed to meet now. And I, the internet thinks he told her to go do this. For reasons. I don't think so because she's an admiral and he's a captain. I think Starfleet would have been the one who said, Cornwell, we want you to go. Well, that's interesting because just in this podcast episode, you point out to me that he was suspicious when the Vulcan admiral said, oh yeah, the Klingons want to negotiate. And Lorca, now you are telling me that he was thinking there must be more to this. So he must have suspected that this was a dangerous situation. And I think that's why he suggested Cornwell go because he wants to put her in a scenario where she may not return. Yeah, I still have two minds of this. Like, I think he knows something is up, but I, 
he uh, Cornwell wasn't in the room when he bring, brings this up with Michael. And people were saying, well, he's the one who sent her, or he's the one who sent Cornwell on this mission. But he's, an, uh, he's a captain, and I don't think she would be listening to him right now after what he just pulled. So I think he may have suggested it to someone, and they brought it to Cornwell. We just don't... I think there's... I don't think it was him directly telling Cornwell, go do this, because I don't think that would have fit. Well, no, he doesn't have the authority to do that, but I think he could have... Yeah. Been, I think he could have planted the idea in her head. Yeah, yeah, if she would have listened. Like, in that state, like, if I were her, I would not talk to him at all until duty required. But I think that she would be able to say to herself, even though Lorca is a crazy son of a gun... I also don't see an alternative. I think I need to go, regardless of who I, whose idea it was. That I agree with. That I agree with. So not, that's not Lorca's only idea while he's in sickbay. He also turns to Burnham and says, you are doing exemplary work. You should be proud of yourself. And if you want it, there is a science position for you on my bridge. And don't even think about saying no. And she immediately says yes. He wants her on the bridge, which is something that it seems to me he might be working for. He might have been like, realizing the crew would have trouble with it at the start and he shoved her down into engineering or whatever and all of a sudden now he's like okay after a few weeks you proved yourself you're amazing i want you on the bridge i think there's a reason he wants her there and we know that Lorca does not consult with saru because he is probably not going to be happy with this no he's not <laughs> and burnham even says it's an honor to be serving under a captain like you Lorca." yeah yeah which surprised me because burnham seems very discerning to me she seems like somebody who can see through other people's crap and Lorca, he has something going on. And the fact that he has been able to pull the wool over Burnham's eyes, of all people, disappoints me. Yeah, or maybe there is nothing uh, malicious behind him. And we're all just sensing things because we want to. <laughs> mm, that would be nice, but I don't, I don't think, think that's, that's what's true. happening. Yeah. No. I think that's very low possibility. Once Lorca leaves, Burnham is now alone and able to confront Sarek, which is a difficult encounter. Yeah, they have this father-daughter moment, where basically he pretends he doesn't remember anything <laughs> about what happened. But she's like, I know you do. So quit, quit, quit with this uh, charade. Uh, so we have this father-daughter moment where she's like, do you want to talk about what happened on the, in that mind meld? And he's like, I don't remember what happened in the mind meld. And she basically has this like... <sighs> Fine, Dad. We'll talk about this later. Because uh, <laughs> he's being stubborn and doesn't want to talk about it, his feelings. And she's basically, she wants to. And he pretends he knows nothing and she knows he's lying. And he's like, well, she's like, we, I want to have this family moment. He's like, well, technically we're not related. So we don't have to have the family moment. <laughs> and she's like, she walks away saying, we'll have this conversation someday, Father. And she walks out. Yeah, and it's disappointing that this revelation that they shared in Sarek's mind has not brought them closer. In a way, she is very bitter that she's been lied to for so long. And it's sort of the opposite of what we saw happen in the TNG episode Dark Page, where Deanna never suspected that anything like this had happened, that Loxana was carrying a secret. And once Loxana shared that secret, it brought the two even closer together because they were able to grieve together. And here, we don't see that healing, at least not so immediately as it happened in TNG. Yeah, Vulcan stubbornness. And that is something that Burnham definitely learned in her time on Vulcan, is how to be stubborn. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So then we see Cornwell has accepted the idea that she has to negotiate in Sarek's place. She goes to board a shuttlecraft, and she says, once I get this mission behind me, I'm going to make sure that you get the help you need, Lorca, and that you'll get your captain's chair back after you get the help you need. Did you expect this scene to end like the DS9 episode in the Pale Moonlight? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that at all. I really thought that Lorca had done something to her shuttlecraft, that he had sabotaged it, and that she would not make it to that negotiation. Well, if he would have yelled, it's a fake! <laughs> it's a snake! <laughs> it's a cake! It's a Jake! <laughs> Ken, we'll leave a link to this in the show notes about what weird video we're talking about. <laughs> because otherwise, none of that makes any sense. No, no. <laughs> but anyway, I know I didn't think he sabotaged her shuttle shuttlecraft. Yeah, that would have been easy to trace, I think. It's not like it's a Romulan ship, and it's not like there are Klingon insurgents on Discovery. Or is there? Oh, no, that's right. Ah! <laughs> she walks, they have, she says that to him, like, I'm going to basically help you get the help you need when I get back. And she walks away. He has this look in his eye. It's, he always has a stern look, but something about this, I don't know, it just felt different to me. And maybe I was just looking for things. But almost, to me, I wrote down in my notes, like, does he know what's about to happen? 
or does is he worried about what's going to happen when she gets back? And I couldn't tell. You think he was sad about something? He was either he he was sad. Well, he was sad either way. He knows it's going to happen to Cornwell, or he's sad that he's going to lose his shit when she gets back. I don't know which. Sort of a lose lose. Yeah, and he, and he says this line, and I, I was going to look it up, and I didn't. Not. He tells the admiral, "May fortune favor the bold, admiral." So I wonder if he said that for a reason, but I don't know what that would mean. Right, it's just a Latin proverb that's often used in the military. There's no specific context for it, and it's not the name of an episode to date. Yeah, so why he said it? I'm It'd be funnier sure. if he just said, like, Lethe, Admiral, Lethe. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, what? He's like, I don't know. I just I had to work it in somewhere. <laughs> so I looked it up on Star Trekopedia. Anyway, yeah, she flies off, and then we cut back to... Tilly doing laps. Which, why don't they have an exercise room? They have a holodeck, but they don't have a gym? You know, I suspect they might, but I hate running on a treadmill with a passion. I run a lot. And any chance to be able to just move with the scenery going past me instead of not moving, I would take it up in a heartbeat. But it seems like it'd be a fairly simple hack to combine a treadmill with a holographic projector so that it looks like you're running around. You think so? Maybe, or maybe she didn't have enough holographic time stored up. Maybe. Maybe that maybe that counts as rec time. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, Burnham stops Tilly during her lap and says, I give you bad advice. There are many ways to be a captain. Find your own way. And Tilly says, I have. And she keeps running. Yeah, it was a quick little scene. and But just like, Tilly's like, yeah, I'm good. But more than Tilly's response, I want to know, what do you think prompted Burnham to change her mind? I think it was her whole ordeal with... Sarek. Like, basically, she had a path in life. She was supposed to do this, 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 that. And she was trying to give Tilly that same advice. Basically, somewhere in there, she realized that wasn't the right way. You have to do it your own way. Do you think she was at all inspired by Lorca? Because Lorca had said that the reason he mounted this unauthorized rescue mission for Sarek was because he values Burnham. And so, I don't know if Burnham is starting to realize there are many ways to be a captain. I had only ever served under Captain Georgiou, she must have been thinking. And now I'm serving under Captain Lorca, who is a completely different kind of captain. And they're both excellent. And how is it that there are so many different kinds of captains? Yeah, no, it's very possible. That's the second time we've had that come up then, because Saru was doing it last week. That's right. Yeah, so I think everybody needs to learn that there are multiple ways to run a starship. And just because you've only seen one way doesn't mean it's the way. We have another scene immediately thereafter with Burnham. She's again in the mess hall, again with Ash Tyler, and she is trying to verbalize all the conflicting emotions she's had. It used to be her emotions conflicted with her logic. Now it's her emotions conflicting with her emotions, where she's disappointed in Sarek, but she also has hope that she can repair their relationship and all these different things. And she's like, what is this that I'm feeling? Which... Oh my god, it's such a trite line, because I think everybody in the audience knew exactly what the response was, and Ash Tyler's like, it's being human. And I'm like, oh my god, every Star Trek has a character who's trying to be more or less human, whether it's Spock, or Data, or Odo, or the Doctor, or Seven of Nine, or Phlox, Mm -hmm. or T'Pol, and in this show, it's Michael Burnham. She's the one who's trying to figure out what it means to be human, and Tyler's like, welcome to the human race. Yep, yep. At this point, she basically, she holds out her hand and basically wants to reintroduce herself, and she's like, hello, I'm Michael Burnham, and he goes, Ash Tyler, we've met. And she says, like, have we? I, you know, that was supposed to be a, I I think they're totally giving us a bunch of red herrings now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> possibly giving us a bunch of red herrings because that was like after last week and everyone's like i wonder i wonder and this week it's like so many uh, seemingly obvious references to like you fight like a klingon oh we've met like <laughs> yeah it'll be interesting to see where that goes i kind of wish i wasn't aware of that fan theory because it'd be fun to get a big reveal later in the season and have to go back and rewatch all these shows with this new perspective yeah it would be wouldn't it but you had to ruin it for me, Bree. Thanks. Yep, yep. Take that. Ah. And we have one last scene where Cornwell and her two security guards show up on a neutral planet, which, according to Memory Alpha, has never been mentioned in Star Trek before, so there's no history there. They're meeting with the Klingons, and also the inhabitants of this neutral planet are serving as the intermediaries, the hosts. And the Klingons basically kill her guards, kill the hosts, 
take her prisoner. A hologram of Cole shows up and says, well done. You two houses who have been rejected have done well to capture this admiral, even though I originally wanted Sarek. This is even better. And as a result of capturing her, I will give you the technology to cloak your ships. Welcome to the war, basically. He says, welcome to the new Klingon Empire, which... I think it's different than what Vok was trying to, and Takuvma were trying to do, call it. So it almost makes me think that he's starting his secondary thing as well. Second, oh, in addition to the war, he wants his own house or his own empire? Yeah, he's trying to forge the empire. Oh, he wants it. Well, the others are all doing their own thing. Yeah, it is interesting, all this deception. And it does give lie to... Lorca's intention in sending her there. He probably thought something like this might happen. And in fact, when Saru says to Lorca, Cornwall's been captured, and Lorca says, okay, if we are ordered to go on a rescue mission, we will. And Saru's like, we're accustomed to thinking differently about these things. Why don't we just go on a rescue mission like we did with Sarek? And at this point, Lorca starts taking Cornwall's advice and says, no, I'm only going to do what's ordered. And that's because he doesn't want her rescued. And also he acknowledges that it might be a trap to lure Discovery in and capture the mushroom drive. Yeah, so he was parroting Cornwall's words against her, even though she wasn't there. And this is like an evil, evil something is up here. Like, <laughs> like Is it evil? Because I think Cornwall would be pleased that he is not mounting a rescue mission. She would probably say, you can't risk the Discovery. It's very possible, but it's not very Lorca-like to do this. And I, it's possible he was like, I'm not going to do it because you're going to take away my ship. Or I'm not going to do it because of what, you just, what we just talked about. So you're saying that Lorca acting more Starfleet-like is evil? For him, yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. So evil is all relative. Yeah. Weird, huh? So acting out of character is evil? Uh, I, well, in, for him, yeah. <laughs> at least in this situation possibly evil i'll have to remember that next time i want to be evil that'll just me- mean like not recycling a water bottle or something yeah yeah <laughs> so out of character so evil all right <laughs> sorrow leaves Lorca closes the door turns around and looks out the window we see his reflection again this one does not move on its own like last week but the camera pans back and he's got a phaser uh, behind his back. Oh, that's right. I was wondering what was up with that. Do you think he was prepared to kill Saru? I'm wondering. I don't know. Or, yeah, that was one of my things. Like, is he, what is he doing? And also the ending with, in a reflection as two episodes in a row. I can't make any sense of why he would kill Saru. He's on edge for some reason, at least. What did he think Saru might have been telling him that would require Saru's death? Like, if Saru came and said... You've been relieved of duty? Lorca wouldn't kill him because then he'd never get the captain's chair back. Uh-huh. So it, could, it may not necessarily mean that he was going to kill Saru, but he's on edge. Very much so, yeah. But then again, he sleeps with a phaser, so maybe this is just how he stays in his room all the time. Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh no, he, didn't, he did not seem to do that when he was looking at a space map earlier. But anyway, yeah, so there's a, implications there. One episode ends in a reflection again, and two, Lorca is troubled. Well, we've known that. We know that, but we see the degree. You know, when I watched this episode last night, I didn't think it was moving the plot forward as much as the previous episodes did. But now that we've talked about it, it explained a lot more about our two main characters than I initially realized. And I think it's definitely laying the foundation for many things to come. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the first time we've seen Burnham and Sarek in the same room, not as a psychic connection or a flashback. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. They had not actually met at any point in the run of Discovery. So here they are in the present day. I think it's also the first time we saw Saru's feet. He was wearing heels, wasn't he? <laughs> no, he's got hooves. Hooves? Yeah. Hooves? I didn't notice that. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, he basically said he is a cow evolved. Uh, I guess. <laughs> uh, I wonder how many stomachs he has. Hmm. <laughs> well, he's like a Klingon. He has multiple body organs. That's right. So we skipped the coming next week on Discovery teaser, like we always do, which means we have nothing further to discuss, unless you do, Bree. Yeah, I have one note that I have a theory or hypothesis about what's going on in this episode. Or oh, I wanted to throw this question at you: Were the Vulcan extremists? Did they help set up this meeting with the Klingons to kill Sarek? I don't think so, because why would they have then tried to kill Sarek on the way there? Okay, that's a possibility. Yeah, I didn't think of that. And also, if they knew that Cole was going to turn against them, 
I mean, that basically would be aiding the Klingon side of the war. And Vulcans may be extremists, but I don't know that they want war with the Klingons. I don't think that even they are fanatical enough to see war as a good thing. Yeah, okay. So my original thought was thinking a way to get rid of Sarek, but yeah, why would they double up on it? So yeah, I think you. I think I was just looking for conspiracies, but I I do think that Vulcan Admiral is in on it. It's hard to say. I don't know that character well enough, and I might not even had known he was Vulcan if not for the ears. Yeah, yeah. So that is another episode of Star Trek Discovery and another episode of Transporter Lock. I'd like to end by sharing another review that was left for us on iTunes. This is by a user named TCV, who we shouted out on Twitter, and he writes, There are two reasons I like this show. First, it's timely and hits my feed very soon after the episode aired. Also, Ken and Sabriel both bring insight that only two very long-term Trek fans can. The show is quick and sticks to the topic well, which I appreciate with all the other shows I listen to. Subscribe! (laughs) So thank you, TCV, for sharing your review. I don't know if we're doing a good job of sticking to the show being quick. As opposed to being timely, we do aim for 24 to 36 hours after Discovery airs. So that's not like an immediate spoiler, but you can listen to it while it's still recent. And if anybody else would like to leave a review, it's super easy. Just go to transporterlock.com slash iTunes. That's transporterlock.com slash iTunes. And click on some stars if you want to just leave a starred review. Or if you want to leave a... Five stars. Five stars, that's right. Supplemental messaging. (laughs) And if you want to leave leave less than that, let us know why. One person left a one-star review but didn't leave any notes. So that is not feedback we can act on. So yeah, leave a five-star review and then tell us what we need to do. Yeah, so if you want to leave some feedback that we can use to improve the show, we'd much appreciate that. In the meantime, that's it for this episode of Transport Lock. I'm Ken. I'm Sabriel. And live long and prosper. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at Transporter Lock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at transporterlock.com. She has this metallic superficial implant on her face that makes three connections right where a Klingon mind meld would. She goes Vulcan back Vulcan mind in... meld. What's that? Vulcan mind meld. What'd I say? Klingon. Oh. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> wow. That seems a lot more intrusive. <laughs> well, it's better than Romulan one. <laughs>